Hello, I'm Chris Hudson and welcome to FIS's Freight and Quality Podcast on Wednesday the 8th of June and welcome to our 100th episode. Along with this, we of course have a special episode this week. So we were going to be going through a bit of what's been happening in our main markets recently, but mainly we'll be focusing on the creation of the drive for market, subsequent markets, champions by FIS and what the future could hold in store for us. What's made the episode even more pertinent is the fact that this year marks the 20th anniversary of the founding of FIS, a name that has become synonymous with commodity derivatives. But first, let's look at the wider economic and commodity news. Well, China has eased COVID restrictions in Shanghai and has moved uh, hope to uh, boost the embattled Chinese economy as it tries to recover from the economic impact of some of the strictest lockdown measures in the world. The World Bank has cut its forecast for world economic growth this year, uh, even further than it had previously, and described economic conditions as similar to the 1970s, as worries grow about potentially steep rises in borrowing costs being used to control inflation. The IEA chief has outlined that energy rationing could happen this winter in Europe as shortages and high prices combined with a resurgent demand in China could create the perfect storm later this year. But what have we seen in terms of week-on-week changes in the indexes? Well, on the freight markets drive for phase, uh, Cape sizes, we've hardly seen a move there, ending just above 22,000. On the Panamax 4TC, we were 24,500, now just above 24,000. And the Supermax 10TC has dropped, uh, was 30,172 and now is 28,948 yesterday. Both these indexes week-on-week, Tuesday the 31st of May versus yesterday, Tuesday the 6th of June. June. On the iron ore, with that uh, reopening of Shanghai, that sentiment, the positive sentiment of a return to a bit of more normality in China, has pushed up that iron ore 62% index. It was 13650, uh, now closing yesterday 147 quarter. On crude, um, we have come down a bit week on week, but still very volatile and high prices. 123.15 closing on the FIS report on Tuesday 31st. Uh, It did close yesterday at 120.34 when we were producing our report in the evening. Uh, But again, as I was saying, really large movements there, really high prices. And of course, it is no surprise then that the Sing 0.5%, the uh, very low sulfur fuel oil, uh, is still high again was 93645 now 912 on the front future there uh, if you're looking at the indexes that has pushed above a thousand bucks on the singapore and uh, very closely followed by the rostam versions as well and on the tankers we've seen uh, a little bit of movement up on the the vls very low very large crew carriers uh, t3c route ending 4423 in the world scale and on the product carriers tc2 tc5 TC2 has been uh, a big movement up there, 325.28 closing, having been 217.14 a week ago. Uh, on the TC5, that was 251.43, closing 230.71 there. Large movements up and still maintaining those decent rates, especially on the product carriers there. On steel, that's continuing its fall down in price. Uh, we've dropped below the 1,000. We dropped below again where it was a week ago at 962. Uh, this is Northwest European steel and now 944 closing uh, yesterday. Uh, And on the EUAs, that's the compulsory European Union emissions market. It was 84 euros and two cent and closed yesterday at 81 euros 31. So a slight fall there as well. But let's go to the big topic of this week's podcast, uh, looking back and a looking forward episode. And there is no better person to talk to about the history of freight and bulk commodity derivatives than FIS's founder and CEO, John Bernaskiewicz. So, John, it's always good to have you on the podcast to talk about things. And it's a story which... I've heard bits about, 
And I want to hear the full story about how this market started because FIS was at the forefront of, of that, especially with you yourself as well. So how did this, what was it like at the beginning of this market? What was, what was going on? Well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me today. How long have you got? <laughs> how long do you need? <laughs> okay. So, well, it's your anniversary today, 100 podcasts. And it's FIS's anniversary, 20 years. So uh, I'll just give some of the readers or listeners um, a bit of a history about our company and how it all started. Well, obviously, um, our first product which we started was FFAs back in 2002. And at that time, the rates were very low and there was a lot of deregulation going on in the market. So it was ripe for the market to grow, particularly um, in the energy and freight world. We started that and we saw we helped develop the market from a small liquidity pool to where it is today um and then back in 2008 when we had you know when i ever go to conferences and people talk about market moves like we've just seen the nickel market nothing can compare to what happened in 2008 um where capes went to two hundred twenty thousand dollars in may and then in december went to two so 99 percent crash but as a company, we were the main broker at that time doing FFAs. We didn't just sit back and just call everyone and say, please pay your commissions. We went and tried to save everyone from going bust. So we were the pioneering company which created netting, which I think even today when I go to conferences, people pat me on the back and say, thank you so much. You saved me so much money. So basically netting was if somebody owed somebody 40 million and they owed somebody... 42 million it netted out at 2 million so i think we did about 1.8 billion dollars in netting and our company in that at that time didn't didn't just stand still it looked at why why the market collapsed uh, and it was mainly because of iron ore because iron ore was a sort of contract which was fixed on a yearly basis between the chinese steel mills and the and the miners and it was unbelievable it's the second biggest commodity after oil but we didn't have a derivative we didn't have an index and we had the miners saying we're never going to sell fixed price again you know to these big steel mills so we helped create the iron ore swap which was the first contract we ever did and we broke on SGX and uh, the market grew from there and as a result we went on to create new products like steel scrap we created this thing called virtual steel mill which everyone claims it's theirs but we did it um, and we grew our business from there um, our company um, you know, we, we were sort of an underdog. We're not a huge company, uh, but we like to fight like Spartans. I joke with the guys in the office, you know, we've got to be for the deaf and we've got to try and help our customers and do the market justice by doing a good job. Um, there's been so many funny stories over those 20 years. Uh, I probably could be here all day talking about them, but a couple of funny ones which spring to mind. Um, obviously, the customers are really funny, but I can't really talk about them because <laughs> some might be happy and some might be upset. Um, but anyway, uh, I remember there was an article back in, you know, I don't know, 2006, seven, and we started off our company a very, very modest place. We were above um, Sainsbury's. Um, my kids still laugh about it. Um, back in Chislehurst, which we weren't even in the city, we couldn't really afford the rent in the city. And But for some reason, Tradewinds, which was the major shipping newspaper, published an article and called me the $100 million man. I don't know why. <laughs> People have subsequently called me the Iron Man, but I'm the $100 million man. So they came for an interview. So they came to the office 
and obviously they didn't know where our office was and then they were expecting me to have a Ferrari or a Lamborghini outside but I walked out with a Sainsbury's bag with a bag of broccoli and potatoes for my young three four kids so they obviously didn't publish that article that day because it didn't it wasn't sexy enough Another couple of funny stories, um, you know, we've obviously built our business in Asia to a big business. One of our clients in Singapore, when we did our, an FFA trade, um, uh, I had to, today, you know, everything's all automated and we have to put all the trade details and the name of the company and the name of the person. So I basically asked who the name of the company, which we knew, and then he said, my name is FU. So I said, I can't just put FU in the trade ticket because it's got to be, for compliance reasons, it's got to be fully spelled out. So I said, I don't want to tell you my full name. So I was like getting a bit curious why he wasn't going to tell me his full name. So I said, I said, I need to do it because compliance is asking me, what is your full name, please, sir? He said, fuck you. So I did laugh. Well, I didn't laugh, really. I said, OK, thank you very much. And actually, he did really well out of it, and he traded quite a bit with us from then on. But there's many, many funny stories. Anyway, going forward, um, our company, um, you know, we are growing. We're always a pioneer. We always try to be first. We always try and develop new stuff. Obviously, some of the new things we're doing at the moment, we're trying to develop the container derivative market, which is a... 240 million ton 40 foot box market and it doesn't have a forward futures market and we need something as a alternative to the physical market and obviously the volatility has gone up everyone's talking about carbon you know it's like the new crypto um some of it i think is way too complicated for people to understand and people make a lot of money out of it with consultants we're trying to make it quite simple and we've got to basically we've come up with a theme where let's go green and actually make money in the process so we want to help people to actually trade carbon as well as helping the planet so that's a win-win and um you know in other things we've done in those 20 years well there's lots of things um we've been very benevolent you know we've really tried to help um the world with charities so we've donated over two million pounds uh in the last 20 years to charities and what we try to do is we're trying to pick charities which are kind of spot prompt so whenever there's a big world crisis we step in straight away um so for example when there was the japanese earthquake we donated money to that we did the tsunami we did recently the the covid and the ppe we gave a lot of equipment and obviously last month we helped the ukraine humanitarian aid so i'm really really proud about that and even some people who had cancer you know have helped to create a cancer charity to catch cancer early um so i just wanted to say on behalf of um the company and fis i wanted to thank everyone for their support over the 20 years um it's been a great success story, but a lot of fun more importantly and um you know one little thing um we've been the number one IDB broke in the world for the last 11 years so that is a real record so I'm really proud of that so we're not showing off we're not arrogant but we really want to thank you the customers for making us number one in these markets we trade so thank you and you've had a, a great success it's, it's clear from those awards from all the things that have been done being a pioneering in that market but there must have been along the way people who have been naysayers who go this won't work I don't understand anything else when you originally created the FFA for the dry, then all those new ones in iron ore, 
what I mean, th- those naysayers will be the same in new markets as well. But we've we proved them wrong in the previous ones. You know, what would you yeah. say to those kind of people who? Well, I didn't actually create the FFA because that was created back in the sort of eighties, along with Bifex and companies, our competitors like Clarkson's, who were also the first to get involved in FFA, including my friend Philip Van der Beel. Uh, but uh, you know, obviously, a lot of company uh, people say things are never going to work they're never going to fly it's not going to happen you know because there's lots of negativity and people out there but you've just got to believe in the product and as we've said before it, if it if it's volume volatility and value it's got a very good chance of actually working so it might take six months it might take five years but obviously some of the markets it's taken a while to grow but you've got to believe in what it's what benefit it's going to have to companies and industries and people we listen to so we try to defy those critics and say that and some people actually don't want it to happen because some companies want no transparency they don't want competition you know uh, and a good example is containers you know do the lines actually control 65 percent of the fleet? do they want something to compare with in fact i was in california um two months ago at the long beach conference there's three thousand people because today there's a lot of these conferences around the world and um we had a concession on container futures we only had 30 and so what I did say to them, I said, you know what, in five years, you're going to have to buy a ticket to come in here because you're a part of history, because you're going to be the the, the the new adopters, the newbies of this stuff. So some people don't want things for certain reasons, but they see things as a threat. But actually, at the end of the world, at the end of the day, the world evolves around risk management, volatility and derivatives, and it, it helps every bit of the industry. Now we've had that comprehensive history from John B, uh, we're going to be moving on to the future. What will markets be like? Will there be a new dominant market? What are the changes that we're going to see impacting the freight and bulk commodity markets? And we obviously have Alex, our MDO strategy here at FIS. And Alex, what is on your mind when I say, what's the future going to be like? Well, there's a few factors that I've d- identified. Um, obviously, there are many, but let's start with staff. So retention of staff, recruitment of people, and where we place them and how we use them going forward. So, you know, people talk about ESG and they talk about diversity. It's obviously an important part of recruitment and retention and how we sort of, you know, service our clients and our customers best while, whilst, you know, helping to develop our, our own company. So I really believe, you know, adapting a, a new and innovative strategy as well as maintaining what's worked in the past and recognising the cultures within Broking that have been so profitable is going to be one of the big challenges going forward um i think with that hand in hand goes regulation regulation governs so much that we do in terms of not just our staff members but the framework with which our products and 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 our and broking uh sit within how that develops and and the landscape of regulation in, in the future is going to be interesting obviously we all know about the shipping carbon law that's just one example but we could potentially be looking at reams of regulation over the next five ten years as you know, events unfold that, uh, that that could really change, especially affect have big effects on freight and, and dry bulk. And then one of the things that, you know, we're always looking uh, at, and we have a working group here within FIS, is new markets. Now, it's important to say that we obviously, you know, allocate resources to maintaining existing markets. Our core markets are, are crucial to, to our day-to-day business, but we are constantly looking at new businesses to develop, to allocate resources to. Not all of them will work. Not all of them have uptake from, from you know, clients, exchanges, and, and so on. But what are the new markets going to be? You know, pulp and paper is something that we're looking at here at the moment. Carbon renewables and emissions are just on everybody's lips at the moment. But 
is that really a new market when the EUA contract is so developed? You know, is there a question that CME are potentially behind by bringing out their new contracts? Um, you know, the, the voluntary market, effectively a physical market, that's becoming an incredibly interesting one where you're not really a broker, but you're, you're more in an origination role. But, you know, not to get too tied down on those, where, where else? Do we go back and look at the air freight, the air freight FFA market? Container FFAs are, are now working for us and trading with us. There's, there's a lot to explore there. So, um, you know, like I said, I think for us, the future really, you know, is focused around staff, regulation, new products. That for us, I think, will be some of the core objectives that, that we look at going forward in the future. And then to my mind, in terms of what's been happening recently, there seems to be increasing levels of certain areas of risk, that being political risk, especially what's been happening recently and the, the kind of breaking of the the globalization of the world and actually you'll have areas which will be much more difficult to get to and it won't necessarily flow that something goes to an area that it needs the economic lines that there's something political that needs to be taken care of and to be appreciated as well yeah i think local sensitivities are, are, are an important factor i mean hsbc always had this sort of logo about uh, or slogan rather about being the, the global bank local bank or whatever it was um there's definitely a, a not, you know a need for understanding local nuances and, and cultures and you know our, our presence uh, in Asia is is well documented and very established our presence in the US is definitely something that we're going to look to build on obviously Brexit has thrown up the challenges that, uh, that it has that we all know about and that's something that, that we're moving into as well um, it, it, it's always amazed me that so many uh, brokerages and commodity firms don't it's not that they ignore Africa but they don't really seem to have much of a corporate presence there outside of a number of you know maybe your Sassels and a few others that's something that we've discussed internally about looking at going forward and of course the Middle East plays a, a big part in, in the commodity complex commodity and energy complex. And then uh, moving forward in terms of, you, you mentioned staff skills, but also this is something which is for customers as well in terms of skills that, you know, we at FIS have a, a, a most of our businesses in derivatives, something which some areas of the physical market don't necessarily understand or have the skills to be able to deal with. And that's something that as increasing risk happen, the ability to manage that risk using derivatives is a skill which some staff can need and maybe they need a dedicated department. Completely. And, you know, it's it's cynical to say that education has become a business. I I think it's better to say here at FIS that uh, education has become part of our business. Um, You know, as much as we talk about derivatives being a a hedging tool, they're not suitable for everyone and you need to acknowledge that. But that shouldn't shouldn't mean that you're cut out of learning about them. Um, You know, Swaps, options, you know, they, they are there to help you manage manage your risk, but they're, they're, cert- they're certainly not for everyone. But again, educating people about derivatives and the products, the underlying products themselves, is uh, is something that we're focusing on here at FS and, and help us only do better with people. A big market that you cannot ignore in the future is carbon emissions. Now, this has been a fast-moving, emerging market driven by political and societal pressure. I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of information floating out there about carbon emissions, some good and some less helpful. We do have a dedicated team here for carbon emissions at FIS, and of course, there is no one better than the head of that desk, Theo, to explain why this market matters and how, whether you like it or not, you're probably going to have to deal in this product. Isn't that right, Theo? Absolutely. Um, thanks for the uh, intro- introduction. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, here at FIS, we have a dedicated carbon desk, and uh, carbon is an, is an area that is going to affect every industry, uh, every one of our desks here at FIS, because the uh, the the move to net zero and the emphasis on net zero by companies, the only way that can be achieved is going to be through carbon credits. 
the the number of the number of ways organisations can reduce their carbon, uh, can, and we'll be doing that internally uh, is possible. But the the remainder, the residual, will need to be come coming through with the uh, carbon credits. Uh, carbon credits will at the moment, considering other other markets such as the EUAs, do look quite cheap. But carbon credits will become in future increasingly scarce and expensive in the years to come. I mean, the pressure to be decarbonizing is is uh, mounting, and now with 130 countries that have committed to the Paris Agreement, they've set some ambitious tasks. So, it's going to be very interesting and uh, an area that everyone needs to get get involved in. And this is something which there'll be plenty of people out there who will be hearing words, reading stories about carbon emissions, and going, you know, just shrugging basically and going, "Well, it doesn't really affect me," but. As we've seen from some of the compulsory markets, so the EUAs is compulsory market in the European Union, and shipping looks likely probably to be included next year. We've got to wait till um, I think some point this month for the, the official verdict on that. You have some other compulsory markets in other areas. Japan, China has one now. Uh, some U.S. states covering specific industries, and more and more of this is going to be included in those. More and more of these companies and industries are going to have to trade these as basically a penalty for polluting. Absolutely. Absolutely, because I mean, from a from a company perspective, um, the companies are now uh, have been pressured by uh, by their investors, by interested, uh, being pressured by social uh, groups, um, even government groups, uh, to start pledging their net zero um, requirements <coughs> and order and pledging for their future requirements and how they're going to achieve them. Now. Essentially, this this is what going to be turning them to the carbon markets in order to find their solutions. Um, we've seen that you know happening in uh, a number of countries now. For example, in Singapore, where the carbon tax has been increased uh, from five dollars to I think thirty five dollars next year, the Singapore government has has allowed them companies to also use a small percentage of international carbon credits in order to sat to uh, to uh, satisfy their requirements now when your car- your carbon tax in singapore is $35 and your larger carbon credits are at 15 US dollars it's obvious that these companies are going to be turning to the international carbon markets to achieve their goals and this is not something which is just precluded in companies which are or areas which are already doing it we we put out a specific piece on the australian election you now have uh, the labor party who's taken control there uh, won the election with the most seats and it's something which is very much on the agenda there and this is something for a country which in terms of the oecd was the only one that had would still be a net carbon emitter in terms of future plans by 2050 even they are getting involved in this uh, as well yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and let's uh, like turning to individual companies. I mean, companies need to really start preparing for for the future. I mean, companies need to start considering their role of the carbon offsets and how that role will be played into the company's organisation in their decarbonisation strategy. Um, carbon offsets are a a tool that's actually a tool that you can actually use currently now today, and you can actually invest in that going into the future. Uh, there are so many strategies that the companies can use to decarbonize, but carbon offsets is a very effective uh, tool to in, to in order to achieve that, that those goals that you need to achieve. So probably the best thing is is I'll um, ask him the certain questions. So I'm a company, I uh, do emit some sort of emissions, be that, be that heavy industry or some of the other ones which may have 
supply chain emissions. Why should I do it now and not just wait for someone to force me to do it? Well, that's that's probably a, a lot of what I've been hearing from from customers. But when you start considering that, uh, you've pretty much got to create your own your own forecast and strategy into what you see the future is going to be holding. If so, if you do believe that this that the Paris Agreement uh, will continue uh, have more pressure from governments and more lobby groups will be pressuring you, then having an understanding or being prepared internally, well, there is no downside to that. I don't see a downside to actually understanding where the carbon market is. I mean, the carbon market is also a little more complicated in the sense that there are certain different types of offsets that you can actually invest in. So, for example, like a shipping company might want to invest in carbon credits that come from the ocean. Uh, uh, mining companies want to might look at certain like area countries or or demographics that they are mining in, they might actually want to purchase offsets from those regions. So there's a number of ways they can actually look into this carbon market. But I don't. I think that acting now and inquiring now and understanding this market and where it's heading to, where the headlines are going, what the talk is and how this, this can actually help your company is a very important thing. And I think you'll be miles ahead at being a first mover than rather being passive about and then trying to catch up in the future. In some way, you're you're now adding to the the list of risks which a company could could have. So that you have price risk if you're buying and selling stuff, which you can then hedge with derivatives. You have kind of monetary risk, which you can do with currencies. Is this now something which companies should be thinking about and going? Actually, I have in essence a climate risk, a carbon risk, which the earlier I get in and understand that, and I can look through the company and understand how I am impacted, you can actually mitigate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, you're basically you're managing uncertainty, so you're, and you're trying to find a clear path into looking at where, how you're going to achieve your net zero emissions by your your date in the future, 2030, 2050, wherever that may be. That's that's a, the, the, that's why these cre- carbon credit market is such an important fact in uh, factor, and companies, all companies, should be considering what they get, how they're going to be involved in this market, and how this market can help them achieve their goals. And I think it's probably fair to say for a lot of people looking at these markets, a lot of people in business looking at these markets, there's multiple contracts. We had ICE launched a new contract. You have the CME global ones as well. You have compulsory markets like the European Union one, the EUAs, some states as well. You have the voluntary market as well. What's your kind of sense of how this is going to come together in a more structured sense in the future? Because there's lots of things happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we are seeing a number of uh, exchanges now launching their own individual contracts. They're all quite similar to an extent, but you do need to uh, dive into the uh, specifics of the uh, contracts to understand exactly how you can actually use them. Then, of course, we've got the OTC market. The OTC market will be a bilateral type of arrangement where you're actually going to purchase a certain type of uh, project or credits. I mean, last night I was having a discussion with the owner of FIS, and he was saying to me, what's the difference between a forestry project in Ch- in Brazil and a forestry project in Indonesia? Well, that's actually a very good question. This is the sort of things that people need to, uh, that's why we're here to help also in trying to uh, educate and explain to people that there's certain reasons why certain projects are more valuable than others. But the, under the most important thing is, is to ask yourselves as a company, what what do you need to achieve your goals? And what were you, what are you happy, what do you want to invest in? It's some, like the uh, Brazilian versus Indonesian credit. 
there could be a dis, uh, difference in in, in uh, price, but that's because maybe it's a different it's a different type of forestry project. It might have certain type of uh, um, community. Uh, added uh, benefits to it it could be climate benefits so there are certain certain factors that may may change may uh, may be the reason why these prices have a difference once again it's all about your company and how your company wants to achieve their goals it gets to put it in a way in a trading terms which people might be more uh, understanding of it's a bit like the difference between similar contracts but of different specific contract terms you have it in iron ore between 62 percent 65 percent you know content of iron ore which you can get out of of that while you're importing or in terms of battery metals another future looking product you have lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate you have different types of things so the more you you can ask questions about these the more you can understand what in terms of your own business and specifically what the kind of thing can be done for you on the on the contracts which are out there And and there's a lot of things happening so the more questions you ask the more you have outreach come and talk to uh, Theo specifically yeah. about what's going on in your company then you can really start to get on the front foot on this uh, hot issue yeah absolutely we're all in this together I mean it's not this might be a uh, product that FIS is offering but uh, yeah I've been in markets for 20 years and this is probably the first product in, I've, I've experienced that actually actually in a, in a funny way makes me feel like I'm, I'm contributing which is a, actually a very nice thing so uh, if the service we're providing, yes, of course, we're here to do our job, but we're actually also here to help companies and help the environment and how, you know, and uh, not, a, not a soppy story, but to help the world. Yeah, I mean, you sort of be broken about in 40, 50 years, Theo, yeah. so you've got to still have a planet to be able to have brokers on. Exactly. That's exactly what we're doing here. Absolutely. Cool. Anyway, so exactly what we're saying here, there's, there's lots of information out there, lots of questions, uh, and a new emerging fast-paced market. So in terms of things, you know, the quicker you get into us these questions, Theo, of course, will be on hand for anyone out there listening who wants to find out some more, or some people who've got some initial information and are really starting to look towards uh, doing their first trades to start uh, offsetting their uh, climate risk. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That's it for this week. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the freight and commodity space, uh, then sign up to our app, FIS Live, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Have a great end to your week.